listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to this episode of Texas History Lessons. Hope you had some black-eyed peas, maybe a little cornbread on the side, maybe a little ham thrown in there. I'm Michael, and with this episode, Texas History Lessons is launching a new series in addition to the normally scheduled lessons and bonus episodes that are already planned out. I'm going to attempt to do a monthly episode on key events from all of Texas's past that occurred in this particular month, January, February, and so on. And as I've structured it, you'll kind of be joining me through a stroll through the Januaries of all of Texas history. If I miss something you find important, don't worry. There's always next January when we take another look at past events of January. Now, this is a very important month, especially for me, since both my mother and mother-in-law were born on January 6th and 7th of this year. I won't tell you the years they were born for their own sake. They might not want me sharing that, but it's very important because they're two wonderful people in my life, and they've been very supportive to me for all of my life. Not my mother-in-law. I met her a lot later, but... I digress. Now, January is a month of extremes. In Texas, you can see ex- the temperature reached 98 degrees like it did in 1997 down in South Texas near the border in Zapata, Texas. And then in 1959, it dropped to minus 22 at the Texas Panhandle's town of Spearman. And to reiterate the size of the state, to drive from Zapata to Spearman is an 11 hour, 49 minute drive without stopping to fill up for gas. That's 738 miles. Now, aside from the other holidays of New Year's and Martin Luther King Day on the 19th, there are several interesting observances celebrated during this month nationwide. There's National Science Fiction Day on the 2nd, National Spaghetti Day on the 4th, the 9th is National Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. January 13th is National Rubber Ducky Day, National Beer Can Appreciation Day on the 24th, and it's also National Peanut Butter Day. So while you enjoy those days this month, I'm going to share a few historical highlights to add to your date book to think about as you journey through this month. We begin way back. If I had specific dates for the pre-contact era, I would share that. January right now would have been the time enough for the Karankawas to gather at their favorite fishing spots and catch the best and biggest fish of the year. The Caddo would have been hunting. They would have been out with their dogs tracking down bears and killing them for their fat. The Humanos down in, the, in southwest Texas, the west the Trans-Pecos, would have been getting ready to go on their trading missions in the spring. But we're going to start with the exploration era. We're in 1540. On January 6th, Spanish Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza appointed Francisco Vasquez de Coronado to lead an expedition in search of the fabulous seven cities of Cibola. Now, we're going to be looking at this expedition pretty soon, so I'm not going to get too close into it. Um, as soon as we finish season one on Texas before, we're going to jump into it. Let's jump ahead to the Spanish Mission era. We're on January 23rd, 1762. The mission of San Lorenzo de la Santa Cruz was established at El Canyon, about halfway between San Saba and San Juan Batista. This was near uh, 
mission that had been sacked a few years earlier by the Apaches that led to a really large expedition up to the Spanish Fort area in Monte County, Texas, where a battle occurred and the Spanish basically had to retreat and march all the way back south in failure. Um, this mission, San Lorenzo de la Santa Cruz, didn't have much success as many of the missions didn't, um, but it did last until its closure in 1771. This next date happened just after Texas became a republic. On January 22nd, 1837, the first steamboat reached the new capital of Houston. Yes, the capital of Houston. Now, for those of you that think Austin has always been the capital, that's not the case. I found this story particularly interesting. But first, the steamboat that ascended Buffalo Bayou above Harrisburg was named the Laura, and it carried Augustus C. and John K. Allen, the two brothers that had founded Houston in the late 1836. The Laura itself had been built in Louisville, Kentucky, for use on the Brazos by Thomas F. McKinney and Samuel M. Williams. It arrived in Texas in 1835, and in April 1836, the Laura carried Vice President Lorenzo de Zavala and Secretary of the Treasury Bailey Hardiman to the San Jacinto Battleground. They were the first government officials to arrive from Galveston, where the government had retreated while Santa Ana had advanced. After the war, she was continued to be used to for her purpose of being brought to Texas, gathering and transporting Brazos River cotton until she had some damage and was not repaired. Now, Houston did not last long as the capital. On January 19, 1939, the Republic of Texas approved Waterloo as the new capital. Columbia, now West Columbia, had been the first capital in 1836, then Houston. There had been talk of making LaGrange the capital in 1838, but President Houston vetoed it. Houston's, Houston's nemesis and successor as President Mirabeau B. Lamar selected the hamlet of Waterloo and adjacent lands to become the capital. It wasn't a popular decision due to the area's remoteness from population centers being farther to the west and making it more vulnerable to attack by Mexican troops and uh, Native American attacks. Houston disapproved, of course. He and Lamar rarely saw eye to eye on anything. Uh, this made Austin's early years very precarious, and there's some exciting stories. There is an archive war that went on. We'll get into those stories in the future. Now, the Republic of Texas faced many challenges, one of which had been annexation. Many people thought the United States would eagerly invite Texas into the Union, but this was not the case. The issue of slavery and the divisiveness of the time caused a delay until the 1840s, and after annexation, trouble did not go away. The Mexican-American War of 1846-1848 led to our next date, January 13, 1847, the day the notorious John Gold Glanton entered in Walter P. Lane's Company of Rangers for service in the Mexican War. If you're a fan of Cormac McCarthy's work, the novel Blood Meridian fictionalized many of Glanton's evil exploits after the Mexican War as the leader of a band of scalp hunters in Mexico. If you want a lot more detail into this, we'll get into it ourselves later, but if you want to find out a little bit more about John Joel Glanton and his murderous evil ways, check out the Bloody Beavers podcast episode on Glanton for all the grisly details. Or just go read the book. Following the Mexican-American War and the establishment of the Rio Grande as the United States' southern border, 
Presidio County was established from the Bear Land District on January 3rd, 1850. This is a significant area because if you remember from the lesson on Humanos, they're on the present town of Presidio on the Rio Grande known as La Junta de los Rios is believed to be the oldest continuously cultivated farmland in Texas. They had an advanced civilization there for for many, 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 many years before other places did, where they had agriculture and they were able to promote trade, much like the Caddos did also. Just enough people lived there in the 1850s to make it a county, and following its creation, people moved in to grow irrigated crops and graze herds on the Rio Grande in the 1850s and 1860s. As Texas grew as a state in terms of population, it also began to develop it amenities and technological necessities on january 5th 1854 the first telegraph company was chartered the texas and red river company it opened for business in marshall texas on february the 14th patrons could message with new orleans via shreveport and with alexandria louisiana and natchez mississippi in san antonio on january 31st 1859 brew master william minger opened his hotel the Minger Hotel is a very famous landmark on Alamo Plaza and is famous for, as one of the best-known lodging houses in Texas that served as temporary domicile for such guests as O. Henry, the author, President Ulysses S. Grant, and President Theodore Roosevelt, among many, many, many more. Now, the tensions delaying Texas from becoming a state came to a boil after the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. And Texas, against Governor Sam Houston's advice, on January 29th, 1861, the Secession Convention of the State of Texas voted overwhelmingly to secede from the United States. The state held a referendum to settle the legality of the move the next month on February 23rd, but suffice to say, 46,153 citizens voted for secession, while 14,747 voted against, leading to Texas' involvement on the losing side of a bloody civil war. We'll look at this next month a little closer, the vote and who voted against it, and the reasons why. While the major campaigns of the Civil War were fought to the east, Texas did see a share of violence and fighting demonstrated on January 1st, 1863, when General J.B. Magruder led Confederate forces in an assault on Union forces that had held Galveston since October. Using artillery and dismounted cavalry on two river steamers, the Bayou City and the Neptune, and infantry and cavalry that crossed over the railroad bridge to the island that were also supported by artillery, the Confederates entered Galveston on New Year's night, January 1st, 1863, and opened fire before dawn. The Union ship Harriet Lane sank the one of the Confederate vessels, but was itself captured by the crew of the surviving Confederate ship, the Bayou City. The Union commander's flagship ran aground, and the commander died trying to blow it up rather than surrender it. The Union's infantry in Galveston surrendered with the remaining Union ships sailing out to sea, ignoring Confederate surrender demands. The port remained under Confederate control for the rest of the war, but it was only open for a week because it was soon under blockade again. During the war, the people on the frontier constantly fretted about the threat of Comanche and Kiowa attacks. On January 5th, 1865, about 100 raiders from Indian Territory attacked a new settlement in southwestern Cook County, killing nine people and stealing many horses. 
It is said to be the last Indian raid in Cook County. Cook County is up on the Red River north of Dallas and Fort Worth. And I've mentioned Cook County and the Lesson of Confederate Statues as well. Uh, five years later, four brothers named Ross established a general store at the site, and it became Roston. And this community is still there. The first post office opened there in 1872. Three days later, after this raid, on January 8, 1865, about 160 Confederates and 325 state militiamen lost the Battle of Dove Creek against the Kickapoo Indians, about 20 miles southwest of present-day San Angelo. A Confederate scouting party had discovered an abandoned, a large abandoned Indian camp the previous month, and a militia force under Captain S.S. Totten and state Confederate troops under Captain Henry Fawcett were dispatched to pursue the Indians. As the militia waited the creek to launch a frontal attack from the north, Confederate troops circled southwestward to try to seize the Indians' horses and prevent a retreat. They were not prepared for a well-armed Indian defense of possibly several hundred strong who fought from higher heavily wooded position as the militiamen slogged across the creek. Three days later, the Texans retreated eastward, having angered the peacefully intentioned Kickapoos who proceeded on to their destination of Mexico. Now, they kind of screwed up here, the Confederates and the Texans did, because the Kickapoo Indians, now an Algonquin-speaking group of fewer than a 1,000 individuals scattered from Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas in northern Mexico, they're the remnants of a larger tribe that once lived in the central Great Lakes region. Pushed by American Western expansion and violence, they had been broken into three groups, the Kickapoos of Kansas, the Kickapoos of Oklahoma, and the Kickapoos of Texas and northern Mexico. The Kansas Kickapoos, seeking to remain neutral in the Civil War, had been going to join their relatives in Mexico to stay out of the violence and conflict. The Battle of Dove Creek settled their minds on whose side they were, and it became a violent, became a violent period for the next several years of border raids across the river by the Kickapoos as they raided settlers along the Rio Grande. The Civil War entered that year, 1865, and the defeated Texans attempted to enact laws biased against freedmen. On January 3rd, 1867, General Joseph P. Kidu, what a wonderful name, Kidu, Assistant Commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, declared that the Texas contract law was biased against freedmen and prevented its enforcement. The contract law was one of many black codes enacted by Southern legislators to keep blacks in an inferior social position and uphold continued legal discrimination. Kidu's effort helped reduce the success of the codes for a time, but after Reconstruction, Southerners redoubled their efforts to discriminate and enact new laws. Now, speaking of freedmen, one famous Texas freedman was a gentleman by the name of Britt Johnson. During the war, he and his family were enslaved to a man named Moses Johnson. During the October 1864 Great Raid, Britt Johnson's wife and two children were taken. One son, Jim, was killed. Johnson set out to the Llano Estacado, and after months of searching, he brought his family and other captives home. Afterwards, he moved his family to Parker County, where he set up a business as a teamster hauling goods between Weatherford and Fort Griffin. On January 24, 1871, about 25 Kiowas attacked Johnson's wagon train about four miles east of Salt Creek in Young County. Young County is up in what they called Northwest Texas at the time. 
not to be confused with West Texas or the Panhandle. It's not that far from Cook County we were just talking about. Accompanied by two other black Teamsters, Johnson put up quite a fight. The men that buried the three counted 173 spent rifle and pistol shells. Their remains were placed in a common grave beside the road. Moving forward, the modern petroleum industry was born on January 10th, 1901, with the discovery of the Spindletop oil field on a salt dome south of Beaumont, Texas. The 1,139-foot-deep Lucas Geyser blew a stream of oil over 100 feet high until it was capped nine days later. This single event brought massive change to Texas and the world. We'll drill deeper into the subject of oil in future episodes. But I'll add that many of the major oil companies like Texaco, Gulf Oil Corporation, Magnolia Petroleum Company, and Exxon Company USA were born at Spindletop or grew to a major corporate size because of their involvement in the Spindletop area. On January 4th, 1923, Fort Worth radio station WBAP created the basic format for country music variety show broadcasting with a program that featured a fiddler, a square dance caller, and Confederate veteran Captain M.J. Bonner. Nashville's Grand Ole Opry and Chicago's National Barn Dance followed and continued the format. WBAP had been started by the Fort Worth Star-Telegram under Eamon G. Carter in 1922. Now let's move forward six years later to 1929 to gain a little bit of perspective about how recent so many of these events are. On January the 4th, 1929, black cowboy Bose Eichard died in Austin. Having been born a slave in Mississippi in 1843, Mr. Eichard became one of the most famous black frontiersmen and trail drivers in Texas. After becoming a free man in 1866, he went to work for a man named Oliver Loving as a trail driver. You might remember Loving as being partnered to a man named Charles Goodnight. Goodnight and Loving were the basis for Gus and Call in Larry McMurtry's famous novel, Lonesome Dove. Eichard himself was a basis for the character Dietz, played superbly by the great Danny Glover in the TV series. Eichard continued working for Charles Goodnight after Loving's death, and they became lifelong friends. Goodnight once praised him by saying that he trusted Bose Eichard Farther than any living man, he was my detective, banker, and everything else in Colorado, New Mexico, and the other wild country I was in. Eichard settled in Weatherford in 1869, and when Mr. Eichard died in 1929, Goodnight bought a granite marker and wrote an epitaph for his old friend, Bose Eichard, served with me four years on the Goodnight Loving Trail, never shirked a duty or disobeyed an order, rode with me in many stampedes, participated in three engagements with Comanches, splendid behavior. Both of my grandfathers and grandmothers very well could have met Mr. Eichard or Mr. Goodnight, men that were so tied to so many legendary events in Texas history. And they would have been able to meet them and remembered meeting them had they just been able to cross their paths because my grandparents were born in anywhere from 1915 to 1917. This man died in 1929. It kind of shows you the context of when we talk about the good old days of the 1860s being so long ago. People lived from the 1860s into 
the 1960s. It happens. Um, and people that knew them definitely live on after that. 13 days after Mr. Eichard died, something good happened. On January 17, 1929, the first printing of Popeye the Sailor Man appeared in the Victoria Advocate. It was the first newspaper in the nation to run L.D. Chrysler's Selger's comic strip, originally called Thimble Theater, which starred the Spanish-eating hero. Seagar himself called the Victoria Advocate Popeye's hometown. In gratitude, he contributed a special cartoon for the Advocate's historic 1934 and anniversary issues. Speaking to the newspaper's editor through Popeye, Seagar wrote, Please accept me Hardy's best wishes and felicitations on account of your paper's 88th anniversary. Victoria is my old hometown on account of that's where I got born at. And you're welcome for me not trying to really do a Popeye the Sailor Man uh, impression. Musician Roger Miller was born in Fort Worth, Texas on January 2nd, 1936, with no formal musical training and apparently never learned to read or write music. Miller became a successful country musical artist. In 1961, he made the country top 10 as a performer with When Two Worlds Collide, a song he co-wrote with Bill Anderson. He also had hits with Chug-A-Lug and Dang Me in both country and pop categories, and he followed them up with even more other more popular songs. Roger Miller, winner of 11 Grammy Awards, died in October of 1992. Now, 10 years before Miller's passing, the blues legend... Sam Lightning Hopkins died on January 30th, 1982. He was born in Centerville, Texas in 1912 and started playing a cigar box with chicken wire strings when he was eight. By age 10 in 1922, he was playing with music with his cousin Alger, Texas Alexander, and Blind Lemon Jefferson. You might remember about Blind Lemon Jefferson and the early blues scene in Dallas when I did an episode on Deep Ellum history. Go back and check that out. It kind of ties a lot of the what we've been talking about, the, the, the Jim Crow laws and the Reconstruction era and how that all came to be. And this magical place of Deep Ellum was created in the heart of segregation, Dallas. Uh, Jefferson encouraged him to continue. And so Hopkins played everywhere he could for the next several years. He settled in Houston in 1950, and even though he recorded prolifically between 1946 and 1954, it wasn't really until 1959 when Hopkins began working with legendary producer Sam Chambers that Hopkins found mainstream success. He switched to an acoustic guitar and became a hit in the folk blues revival of the 60s, playing at Carnegie Hall with Pete Seeger and Joan Baez. Now, he was also a huge hero to a couple of Texas wannabe songwriters, a couple of guys named uh, Towns Van Zant and Guy Clark, who followed him around and whenever they could, would meet with him and hang out with him and listen to him. In the 60s, they ended up launching their own music careers of their own. Personally, I admire the work of all three of these great artists. Um, they all had great success and were, were really amazing writers and performers. Now, Van Zant will close out with him since there's a link to Van Zant and Latin and Hopkins. Um, I consider him to be one of the personally, one of the greatest poets and artists I've ever listened to. He himself died in January of 1997 on new year's day. 
His death came 44 years to the day after that of one of his other musical heroes, Hank Williams Sr. Van Dant was only 52 years old. He's probably best known by cover versions done by Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard of his song Poncho and Lefty. Emmylou Harris made his song If I Needed You Famous. Um, a lot of other people have covered a number of his songs. And at the end of Big Le- The Big Lebowski, that's Towns Van Zant singing the Rolling Stones song Dead Horses, which is also a brilliant version that's on available on an album called Road Songs. Now, I'm going to do uh, detailed episodes on Lightning, Hopkins, Guy Clark, Towns Van Zant in the future. And God willing, I'll be revisiting every one of the different events that happened in January in future episodes of Texas History Lessons and taking a closer look at all of these. But that's going to be it for the for this episode. Happy New Year to everybody. I want to close with a quote from To Live Is To Fly, one of my favorite Towns Van Zandt songs. You know, 2020 was kind of rough on everybody. And we don't know what 2021 is going to bring about, but we're going to try to do the best we can. So be kind to one another. So here's a few words from Towns Van Zandt song, To Live Is To Fly. And I'm not going to sing, and you're welcome for that. We all got holes to fill. Them holes are all that's real. Some fall on you like a storm. Sometimes you dig your own. The choice is yours to make. Time is yours to take. Some sail upon. Some dive into the sea. Some toil upon the stone. To live is to fly low and high. So shake the dust off of your wings and the tears out of your eyes. Thank you for joining me as I walked from January to January over many centuries. I enjoyed this, and I am at work on many episodes to uh, for the future lessons at the moment. And adios. Thanks for listening to Texas History Lessons. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email the show at texashistorylessons at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Visit texashistorylessons.com. Mm-hmm.